Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. Taoiseach Micheál Martin has warned of a frightening wave of delayed cancer diagnoses next year. Tonight, cancer patient John Wall joins us to explain why he wants the choice on how to say goodbye. America braces for the midterm elections next week. Our news correspondent Richard Chambers Chambers will join us live from Florida. And later, why the world's richest person, Elon Musk, bought Twitter, fired the board and made himself CEO. Stay tuned for more on this story a little later on in the show. As always, join the conversation online with your comments and your questions on the hashtag TonightVMTV. Tonight, the U.S. midterm elections take place next week and recent polling in the U.S. suggests a growing number of Americans believe political violence is acceptable. So what will this mean for U.S. President Joe Biden and the rest of America? Well, for more on this now, our news correspondent Richard Chambers is standing by in Florida. Uh, And Richard, you are at an event for Joe Biden tonight. What do these midterm elections mean for him? He appears to be approaching them in in quite a low-key manner compared to his predecessors. Okay, we appear to be having some issues with Richard. Um, If we can come back to him a little later on in the programme, we will do so. But to other news now here at home, and Ireland is to be hit by a frightening wave of delayed cancer diagnoses next year. And in some cases, it will be too late for medicine, Taoiseach Micheál Martin has warned. Well, tonight we look at this story and also why some groups want legalised assisted death for people suffering from terminal illnesses. Well, joining me to discuss this is cancer patient and end-of-life campaigner John Wall, columnist with the Irish Examiner, Terry Prone, Fianna Fáil TD, James Lawless, and Aintu leader, Pather Tobin, and you're all very welcome along to the programme tonight. Um, we want to get on first to that story around the delayed cancer diagnosis and the impact all of this is having. Uh, Pather Tobin, I'll come to you first on, on that because there were figures that you actually requested from the Department of Health. What have those figures told us about uh, diagnosis and, and where the system is at now and the number of people who may be out there with cancer without knowing it? Yeah, so there's been a rapid increase uh, in the number of people who have been referred to GP rapid access uh, clinics. So these are clinics where GPs see there's a a real problem, there's a real worry, uh, and they refer the individual to the clinics. So this year, it's 136% or 36% more 
than it was in 2019 before COVID. And actually the last month, the figure we have is August, which shows a 56% increase uh, over it, the same period in 2019. So there's no doubt that there's a, a significant increase in the number of individuals uh, who are now uh, being diagnosed uh, by the doctors in having cancer. And, and, and the reasons being is because obviously the services were either closed down in screening terms uh, for periods during the COVID restrictions, uh, or there was really very little access for people to get uh, diagnosis or treatment in that period of time. Indeed, I spoke to a, a consultant in uh, cancer during that time. And he said that because of the restrictions, his two-year waiting list had become a six-year waiting list. And then because of overcrowding as well, many of the hospital staff had to be reorientated from emergency or elective surgery in, with regards to cancer uh, to deal with the overcrowding. Uh, and indeed, if, if you look in 2020, figures such as, let's say, um, pieces of organs or pieces of skin that were taken away from people uh, because of cancer, those numbers uh, radically reduced. And actually in 2020, the number of people who were referred to those rapid access clinics uh, fell by 58%. Um, so, you know, th this was an issue that we were bringing to the doll right through this period. I, I said it to the Taoiseach as well. I had a particular interest because I was diagnosed with cancer myself during that time. Mm. And I said it to the Taoiseach, uh, you know, you can't stop this treatment. Cancer doesn't wait. You know, early uh, diagnosis, early treatment is really important. 9,000 people lose their lives to cancer every year. And yet, that didn't happen. The government, you know, actually stopped certain cancer services. During and how you say you had a special interest in it? What happened then with your diagnosis, or, or what did you notice in the system that you felt was important to bring up at a parliamentary level? Yeah. So I suppose in, in my case, I was probably one of those people who actually slowed down my my journey myself because I felt, well, God, the the, pressure, the system is under so much pressure. Uh, I'll wait for a while until you know the system gets gets it together, and then I went to a doctor, and then the doctor did diagnose that I had skin cancer at the time, uh, and then luckily enough, that was one of the periods where things started to open up again, and I got my treatment and I got the skin removed, uh, etc. Um, so I wasn't uh, uh, I wasn't let's say uh, slowed down in my treatment myself, but I knew from uh, speaking to other people within the system that many people were having significantly delayed diagnosis and significantly delayed treatment uh, as a result of decisions that I don't think were the right decisions at the time. Um, John, to come to you on this, as someone who has a cancer diagnosis and a terminal one at that, um, which I know you openly talk about because you're campaigning for you and others like you um, right around the country, what did you think when you heard this news about this delayed diagnosis and I suppose people being put in a situation where they may have got the treatment and they may have been treated much, much more quickly and they're now in a situation that their journey is far more perilous, arguably? Yeah, I was uh, shocked and sad and clear. And although I've known about it uh, for the last 12 months or so, it was blindingly obvious it was going to happen. It was very stark when I read uh, the examiner yesterday and... Uh, I saw Michal's uh, comments. And, you know, as Pader said, early detection saves lives. Uh, detection, intervention, treatment mm. has prolonged my life. And the awful tragedy about this, there are people out there tonight that should have been diagnosed at this stage, but have not been and may not be for some time to come. Those that have been diagnosed uh, will invariably, um, there will be delays in treatment, there'll be delays in... Uh, in seeing the clinicians that they need to see. 
and lives will be lost. Uh, I said earlier today that this is another scandal unfolding in front of our very eyes, and it is. It's the perfect storm. Uh, we've had a couple of years of a pandemic. We have a, a health system that's overflowing with people. And uh, one of the, I think, the main issues uh, that I can see is the, the HSC staffing and recruitment, um, and the staffing and recruitment and retention issue that they have. Patients, more and more patients are presenting and there's nowhere for them to go. The system is full. Mm. What, what, what are we going to do? So this, this, is, this is the backlog, essentially, that you're talking about now because of this couple of years yeah. where we had people who, for one reason or another, didn't get refers, referred. There was also that idea as well that unless you were really sick, you weren't to go to your doctor, you were to stay at home. If you were to see someone, it could be done remotely. And for and that reason, do you believe that cases were not picked up when they absolutely. could have been? Absolutely. Every single day I get, you look well. And when someone uh, finds out my own backstory, you know, they, don't, they, they find it difficult to believe. That's the whole point, that we, don't, we should never judge a book by its cover. And in a lot of cases, the point is that a lot of people don't know that they need uh, to see a GP. They don't go and have regular health checks. There's GP surgeries are full. Uh, those that don't have a regular GP find it difficult to get one. And the crisis that is, is, uh, is going to get an awful lot worse than currently is the case. James, listening to all of this, it's not like that warning was not there during the pandemic that we are seeing a backlog, we are going to see undetected cases, and we will have this situation now. Sure, so this is something that's been seen uh, across Europe as well, uh, across the developed world. Um, it's not unique to Ireland, uh, and I suppose all Western societies uh, put a lot of things on pause during the pandemic, we know that. Was and there was right? this ongoing balance between... Sorry, James, just on that, I know you're talking about this not just being an yeah. Irish problem, but yeah. that's some, something that's been seen yeah, so globally. It, but does that, does that make it right? So eternally, you know, all the way through the last two and a half years, we had this kind of balance between um, lockdown, does it work, does it not work? You know, it's needed for the greater good. Uh, things like children with additional needs and special needs. And that's one of the reasons that the schools were brought back so early uh, and kept open as long as possible and as often as possible. There's always going to be a yin and a yang and an opposite and equal reaction. Um, so as many lives as were being saved, as many health outcomes were being protected by having those uh, lockdowns, et cetera, in place, but there was those, always going to be an knock-on. key and those essential yeah, so services. The, the and key, yeah, so the key point I'd make there that, is that, that is, screening... That has led to what the Taoiseach himself yeah, has said is the absolutely. frightening prospect so, of... Yeah. A delayed diagnosis. And I suppose the teacher is making comments in the wider uh, sphere of the health service, you know, potentially being uh, under great pressure com coming into this winter. But just to make the point as well, that screening is not a diagnostic service, okay? So screening is really important. It's an early radar system, okay? It, it's a best practice, um, good, good housekeeping thing that, that people should present to as often and as frequently as possible. Um, but all the way through the pandemic, the core services, the surgeries, the clinics, the self referrals, so somebody had a a uh, query or a question mark or an inkling, they, were, they could go to the doctor, they could refer to their consultant, they could go, they could get surgery if required. One of, on. How uh, easy was it to go and see well, your doctor? Figures, I mean, John, you're shaking your so, head so there. But just to say, the, the figures Pater uh, provided in his parametric questions, fair play to Pater for using the parametric process and using it well. But one st statistic I noticed was, I think it was the drop from 2019 to 2020 in surgeries, there was still 
of the volume of surgery. So mm. even in the pandemic, right. in the first year of it, it only dropped by 4%. That's pretty close it's, to 2019. It's, first of all, that, that's 750 people in that 4%, which, you know, is, 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 not, insignificant. is, is not insignificant. And the next year, as I said, referrals went down by to 58% less. Okay. And just the, the, the restrictions we had were longer and more severe than any other country in Europe. Okay. And the Taoiseach knew about this because I, I, I actually said it to the Taoiseach and his response to me was get real at the time. All right, OK, I want to bring Terry so in here. Outcomes. Terry, we do have one of the lowest cancer survival rates also in the EU, um, you know, when it comes to, to how um, we help, how we assist people, even when they're in the system. This is also a problem that's been, that's been spoken about. Um, and now when we have these delays in the system and delays with people even presenting and seeing that they have uh, cancer, it's really worrisome, isn't it? Well, the Lancet Oncology this week came out with some very interesting figures that suggested that Ireland was doing, first of all, a hell of a lot better than it did in the past and reasonably well compared to other countries. Our survival rates for specific cancers have extended markedly and you will have patients who are treated, who know that their, their cancer is terminal, mm -hmm. but who nonetheless are, have time bought for them. The cancer story it, within the health system in Ireland is not a bad story. Would you agree with that, John? Yeah, there's a couple of things there. I just want to take issue with one thing that James said, that screening is a good housekeeping thing, quote-unquote. It absolutely is not. Screening is vital. It saves lives. And it is to describe it as a housekeeping thing. I'm sorry, but uh, I don't agree with that. Uh, screening, in my case, uh, were there to be a national prostate screening programme in this country, um, it would have saved my life and uh, ensured that uh, I wouldn't be staring down the... the uh, down the barrel of a gun, basically. It's a terminal illness for me. And uh, whilst my life has been prolonged, that's all it has been. Uh, in terms of the statistics that Terry quoted there, um, I would agree. But why do we keep comparing ourselves to other countries? We should, uh, we should be the world leader in this and not say yeah. it's okay just because we compare favourably with other uh, countries, be they developed nations or otherwise. For certain cancers. Absolutely. We need to take the lead ourselves, be the best that we can be, provide the best public health care that we purport uh, to, mm -hmm. to attempt to try I, to... I think we are doing that. I think our outcomes are, are increasing every year. We, we have a far... Well, we're in a far better position now in terms of cancer care overall than we were yeah. 10 years ago, I'm just five wondering years what's, ago. What's going to happen now with this, as I said, the, the, the backlog, I think, in, in diagnosis and the, the frightening prospect, as the well, Taoiseach himself so has warned about. We've for seen next increased year. presentations, we've seen increased referrals, um, I think perhaps 50% up this year than, than it might have been in a pre COVID year. And that is expected, and that is exactly what yeah. we would see the system working itself through. People are coming in saying, Look, I, I didn't go to you last year, I didn't go to screening last year, uh, I'm coming in this year. Um, and they're being worked through the system. The system will be under pressure, though. The, the, the system is under pressure every winter, and I think in the first post COVID year, especially so. All right, OK, I want to move on now to a sensitive topic this evening. And it's one which you've been writing about, Terry, um, and that is calls for legalised uh, assisted death, essentially to have the conversation. Where is Ireland at with that conversation? Ireland is in a truly weird position in relation to this conversation because for some time, for, for 10 years really, we have had the example of Marie Fleming who was desperately ill, desperately hampered by being ill and who decided to go to court to vindicate her right to die in a time of her own choosing, in a way of her own choosing. And 
because her problem was that like many other people with a disability, any of the rest of us can decide to terminate our lives at any point we want to. It is regarded as a basic human right. Now, it's not, it's not something that we want to promote, but it isn't illegal anymore. However, if you have a neurological uh, disease or have had a stroke, for example, and you want to end your life, but let's say you can't swallow, or you can't reach the means of ending your life, that basic human right is taken away from you. Marie Fleming went to court, she fought the law, and the law won. It won 10 years ago, and at the time, many politicians said, okay, the law is wrong and we have to change it, and Gino Kenny has given leadership in this. But the weird thing is, I have seen in 50 years of working with politics, consensus building on issues and consensus invariably leads to action except in this case there is huge consensus and no action and I don't know why. Um, John specifically you're campaigning for this because you you want that choice when you're at that point you, you want to make the decision about you know assisted dying and to have that you call it dying with dignity in this country at the moment, you don't believe that that exists? I believe it exists for many people, but there are also many others that, uh, despite the intervention of palliative care services in this country, uh, which I avail of myself, and I have to say are absolutely superb, um, despite their best uh, efforts, some people still suffer. Some people have to watch uh, terminal patients suffer. And yes, I absolutely agree with the, uh, the right to choose. I think uh, it's a conversation that Ireland is ready to have. Uh, to, but on saying that, we have to bring uh, everyone into the conversation. And with regards to the Special Oireachtas Committee um, that, uh, that was uh, referred as a result of the um, Justice Committee that James uh, was chairperson of, I think it's absolutely critical that that Special Oireachtas Committee is, is established. What's the delay? I yep. would ask. Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, what is the delay? Yeah. John's saying, you know, and, and Terry's alluded to as well, yeah. Ireland is actually ready for this conversation, but the conversation yeah. is not happening. Yeah, Why so not? I, I agree. Um, I voted for this in the door. Uh, there was a free vote um, amongst my party anyway. I voted for it. Um, I believe in the principle. Um, Gina Kenny introduced private members bill, which um, as chaired the Justice Committee, uh, we considered. Um, we did as much as we could with the bill. Um, the bill was very well intentioned. I, I, it was very I just well. want to get onto the nub of this yeah. because uh, just, you know, just, just on, the, on the, yeah. that there was going to be a separate special committee yeah. to talk about yeah. this. Yeah. That was in July of last year. Yeah. Nothing's so, happened. Yeah, I don't uh, create Oireachtas committees, neither does anyone around this table. So it's a function of the Oireachtas. But is it a lack government. of political appetite no, around it? Well, if it is, it's, it's one across party base around the Oireachtas. But just to take it back to where it's at, so we considered a piece of legislation okay. that Gina Kenny tabled. Good piece of legislation in terms of spirit, but not in terms of detail. It wasn't fit for purpose. We, returned, we said there should be a special committee convened for this. Where that sits is the business committee, which is a cross-party committee within the Oireachtas. Right. They currently have a surrogacy committee, a gender it equality did, committee, and an committee. It just hasn't committee. happened. You're no, talking no, no, about all these no, committees. Sorry, I know, but it so, is just... just so there's just, only bandwidth within the system for, for a couple of committees okay. at once. I'm told that committee will be established in around Christmas. All right. 
Okay, I, Pather, I just want to give to government. It's, it's Pather, a bureaucracy. Pather, to get their view, your view on it. Not everyone is in agreement that this, you know, assisted um, dying should should be happening in this country. But yeah, so internationally, it, it's it's an outlier that countries provide for assisted suicide or euthanasia. So there's far fewer countries that provide it. A lot of uh, progressive Nordic countries don't provide it, and the reason they don't provide it is because there's a lot of unintended consequences that come from it when it's legalised. So in countries like Canada or uh, the Netherlands or let's say Belgium, the numbers radically increase in terms of the people who use it to die. So it's, it's brought in for the purpose of really difficult cases, but one in 20 deaths now in Belgium uh, are true assisted suicide. And indeed, it's, it, it's now available for children, it's available for non-terminal with terminal, illnesses. Uh, children non- who are terminally ill. But no, no, it's, it's available in these countries for non-terminal John, illnesses quickly, and for, for mental health. Your take need, on that, because you're, one of, you're like, one of 5,000 people yeah. who have petitioned uh, the Father, government on respect, this. With respect, we need to compare like with like. And uh, what we're looking for here is legislation um, that would provide for uh, those of us, uh, not just those of us with a terminal illness, but those uh, of us that uh, where death is uh, inevitable. And uh, if I may, there's a very good friend of mine that passed uh, six months ago today, and uh, his name is Brian Lynch. He wrote an article, um, he was interviewed in the Irish Times um, last year. And in it, he said, legislation is not about giving definite instruction on how to die, but would offer terminally ill people an alternative mm-hmm. to unnecessary mm-hmm. suffering. Can I just, That's right. what just we're talking b- b- about. Very briefly, in, in countries yeah. that have introduced it, such as Oregon, 50% of the people who have decided to take assisted suicide have taken it themselves because they feel that they're a burden on, on, on people. Um, it puts pressure on people with disabilities. Disability organisations oppose this in Britain. The Palliative Care Association of Medics in Ireland oppose it. The consultants themselves All oppose of this it. They're needs not, to no. be these are the dealt people who with work in a goal committee All right. and nobody is urgently setting out to okay. set that up. We're going to have to leave that there for now because uh, we are returning to Florida, to the US, where Richard Chambers um, is standing by. Um, Richard, uh, you're, as I say, at a, an event there where Joe Biden will be speaking. Uh, what do these midterm elections uh, mean for Joe Biden? They are, of course, taking place on November 8th. Well, Claire, it effectively is in many ways a referendum on his presidency to date. It has been said that if inflation has really dominated the proceedings thus far, uh, that has been the number one issue for Americans, according to polling uh, conducted by the national media. Joe Biden arriving here as we try to do our first uh, live report uh, for the programme, his motorcade arriving, so the signal jammer uh, knocking us off there. So he isn't getting much thanks for the state of the economy. He's not getting much thanks from our uh, film crew here as well uh, in Florida. But for Joe Biden, this is very, very important. He has said that this is a battle for America's soul. There has been a rise uh, in extremism, uh, in misinformation, uh, and that is something which he is very much looking to push back on. The Democrats, however, look set to be in a battle really to try and hold on to their majority in the House and in the Senate, and it looks like a very tall order for them to do that. Okay, and uh, Richard, the the threat of violence, we talked at the top of the programme that this new new poll indicating that um, some would think that political violence is okay. There are people, of course, who deny that the president uh, won the election at all. So where do all these conspiracy theories, I suppose, leave uh, Joe Biden now as he heads into the midterms with the Democrats? 
Well, it really adds an air of tension to things, Claire, as you move towards November the 8th. It has been said by Republicans we were speaking to yesterday uh, that they very much believe that Joe Biden didn't win that election. About 30% of Americans uh, say they believe that Joe Biden didn't win the presidential election in 2020, uh, baselessly, in fact, it should be said. Uh, while Democrats arriving here to this rally uh, by Joe Biden, the first he has attended in all of the midterm uh, races so far, uh, they say that they are very, very fearful of the threat of violence, some of them wearing uh, Joe Biden hats and T-shirts saying they were afraid arriving here that they would get attacked because of that. Now, there have been a number of people who are election deniers, who are candidates running in this election for both uh, positions in Congress, positions in uh, governorships of a number of states, as well as local elections that will have an influence on how the 2024 election is run. So that is something uh, to keep an eye out on. Uh, what, what to look out for this week ahead of November 8th? Can we expect any surprises between now and then? Not sure you can hear me, Claire. I think. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. The signal jammer has played up with us again, but um, it, it is worth looking at some how these are going to play out over uh, the next week or so. Some very, very key races, particularly in terms of the Senate uh, in the state of Georgia. Uh, Raphael Warnock, a reverend who used to be a uh, reverend at the church uh, where Martin Luther King uh, preached. He is up against Herschel Walker, a former American football star, hand-picked by Donald Trump for that position. That has become a very, very bitter row, particularly in the context of the debate around abortion in the United States. Uh, Herschel Walker accused by uh, two women of having, encouraging them to have abortions to, and paying for abortions uh, for them uh, back a number of years ago. He denies this, but it has really put the focus once again on that issue, that societal issue that Democrats want the election to focus on rather than the state of the, the, the economy. Okay, Richard, joining us from Florida tonight. Thanks very much for that. Thank you for the update. Um, we're going to return to our panel now um, and back to the discussion that we were having. Um, I just, John, I wanted to, to just put the, a couple of the concerns that people may have around the discussion around ending life. Say, the, who's making the decision um, and whether the patient is always at the heart of this. So say you have an instance where 
somebody is in a coma, somebody has had a stroke, somebody has that physical issue with maybe swallowing, being unable to speak, the issue around consent, um, how, do you, how do you address those concerns if you're looking at, at an end-of-life bill? Sure. Uh, first of all, the, the bill that Gino proposed was for terminal patients only. And uh, that um, I support. Um, I guess it's very important that uh, clinicians uh, are involved from the off on this, that the, uh, the, uh, our healthcare system and its professionals. Consent must be given by the patient uh, itself uh, at a, a time when they're fit to do so. Um, and that can only be done, I guess, if, um, if legislation is passed that allows them uh, to make that decision in time. And um, then for the system to respect their wishes when the time comes, but I'm saying that it would have to be approved at that point in time by, I think as it stands at the moment, by two clinicians. Uh, it's not just something that, it's just because you want something in this instance uh, to, to, to end your life because of a terminal illness, uh, it doesn't mean that that wish that will that be granted. Happens. Yeah, that, yeah, that's a fair point to make. I mean, you're talking specifically in Gino Kenny's mm. bill about it being for terminal illnesses and yeah. that those checks and balances would be there. Yeah. Um, so are there still kind of outgoing concerns? I mean, is it a matter of your own ethics on this? Is it, is it something that people feel uncomfortable so with one of the politicians? One of the items that came out of the debate that we did have at the Justice Committee in this with Gina Kenny's bill was, we looked at the Fleming case, as Terry has mentioned, um, probably the lead case of its kind decided by the Irish courts. And what that case found was there wasn't a right to end your own life, but neither was there a constitutional bar on it. So there's actually nothing in the constitution, really one way or the other, that says you can't do this or you can. What the decision said was that but it could be like legislated yeah. for, but it don't have to be checks and balances. So that goes back to the point John makes about would it be terminally ill people only? Would it be people that have a right to rescind that But say in this instance it is terminally ill people. Yeah, I think it's probably most appropriate have, actually. Yeah. I think one of the proposals, I think, in the petition that was put forward or some of the medics that were mm. talking around this was that there'd be three different ports of call that you would have your clinician, so you would have there was, somebody yeah, else. There was an idea it that wouldn't be, be exactly. a solo run by one individual who's deciding exactly. to do Exactly, it would have to be this. a panel of independent uh, sure. referral. Yeah. The other point I suppose is important about the constitution, we don't need a referendum to do this. This can actually be legislated for as it yes. is. There's but no the, need I mean, to change the constitution. I mean, the point which that makes are making is the conversation isn't being had. Pather. Yeah, it's, it's just, I, I, do, I do think we need to listen to the clinicians who work in palliative care. And 80% of them have said they absolutely oppose the introduction uh, of assisted suicide and euthanasia and in this country. And what are their and, concerns, and The Pather? major concerns is, so I mentioned the issue of a burden. So people, 50% of people in Oregon said that the reason that they chose assisted suicide is because they feel that they are a burden on their families or on society. So in other words, that feeling has emanated because now there is a choice that they should be making this choice uh, if they were really looking after the best interests of their family, if you understand. Uh, and, you know, uh, people with disabilities, Disability UK is the, the biggest organisation in Britain who supports uh, people with disabilities. And they say that it would put an unfair pressure on some people with disabilities if um, this uh, right. law was there, because they would feel the, the, the need then that they might choose that. And, and they said it was an illusory uh, choice. And actually what we need to be looking at is assisted living. There's, in, in, in well, part, there's yeah, well, there, in, in, there, there is end of life but, care but in, on in, that. Just, I, just one final I, point if I can. There's, there's parts, like in Canada, for example, we, we've, now, in, I know, in, we've, we've just, we're running out of time. In, in, I want to just get, okay. get John in on that briefly, John. Assisted living. I hear this discussion all the time about life, about pro-life. Um, I 
and people like me with a terminal illness fight with every fiber of my being to stay alive, to prolong my life. And to suggest it's about anything other than living is wrong. And the language used is absolutely critical. You mentioned suicide several times. This is dying with dignity, assisted dying. And to introduce suicide, euthanasia, I think it's very deliberate and uh, it's not very helpful. Can I just come back to this? Like, this is the, d the dictionary definition of a person ending their life is suicide. And it's important that we're straight with people in terms of the language we use. Euphemisms shouldn't be used in, in, in this situation. The truth of the matter is... It's not necessarily assist, a not euthanism not, not to describe something as dying with dignity. No, that but, is the but, phrase but chosen is, by people like Vicky mm, Thielen mm, and others mm, who are right up against the sharp end of it. It's not, rather, with respect, with Terry, it but, isn't that they're using euphemisms. They're using the language that fits their situation. Mm. We we can and use I'm whatever. Using the dictionary language. That's fine. Okay. Use the dictionary language. So I'm, I'm entitled to but use that language. Dictionaries don't tend to have much this. in the way of a heart. Dictionaries don't have much in the way of a heart. that directly after I wrote the column in the Irish Examiner, I got a storm of comment. But one of the lengthy comments was from a doctor. And he had major reservations that Pather would agree with, and he had reservations about the capacity of the health system to cope with this. But that's not the point. This is not the stage where we can engage in that conversation. The conversation needs to be had in the Oireachtas, at least in okay. the beginning. And certainly uh, we will be returning to this again because we can see that it does generate a lot of debate, a lot of commentary, and it should be on the political stage as well. Um, my thanks to you, John, for joining us tonight and telling us your story and why it is so important for you that um, something is done about this. Now, coming up after the break, um, we're going to talk about Elon Musk. Why did the world's richest person make himself CEO of Twitter? Do stay with us. Welcome back. Elon Musk is a name that some of you may be familiar with as the world's richest person. But the billionaire has a new title as CEO of Twitter, the social media company that he recently acquired for $44 billion. Musk sent shockwaves through the company after he fired Twitter's board of directors and appointed himself its sole member. He's already proposing major changes for the social media platform as he embarks on his first week as its new chief executive. Well, for more on this fascinating story, Emmett Ryan, Business Post correspondent, has joined the panel, and Terry, James and Pather are still with me. And Emmett, to come to you uh, first on this, uh, he's worth $250 billion. He owns Tesla. He has space ambitions with SpaceX. Why would he want to acquire Twitter for $44 billion when we know it doesn't make a huge amount of profit, does it? it Tell us about it, what it, his it, motives are behind all of this. Th there's definitely some ego behind this because he's been one of the most prolific users of Twitter as a regular user since its foundation, especially in recent years. Whenever he's like decided to do anything even mildly controversial, he's made sure he's gone to Twitter to talk about it or to talk it up or start fights. But like he's owned it for a lot less than a week and it's already kind of turning into a bit of a dumpster fire, Claire, to be honest. When Nancy Pelosi's husband got assaulted, he was obviously he was like sharing a link saying, no, no, check this out to an extremely fake news site with a fake story that had serious anti-Semitic ramifications around it, basically implying that the attack wasn't legitimate. Of course, the attack was legitimate. And now he's trying to like charge for blue ticks, claiming that somehow that will even out matters on Twitter by claiming, oh, there's a lord and peasants classes. And his way of solving lords versus peasants is by 
charging money for something, which is a bit yeah, odd. Yeah, let's so. see. He did, um, he did tweet about that, saying Twitter's current lords and peasant system for who has or doesn't have a blue check mark is bull. Uh, power to the people, blue for $8 a month. Now, for people who don't know, <coughs> this is the verification system whereby if you're part of a maybe a news or media organisation or you can, you know, say you're, if you're a government official or, you know, particularly, they, they get blue ticks. So people maybe know that when you get a message from this organization that this is real news as distinct from fake. Yeah, and that's the purpose of it. Like, you know, and I was thinking about a few examples today. Like if you're, you know, a police force and say there's an Amber Alert or something like that you're mm. trying to put out there, you know, if you have to pay for your blue tick, like the Gardaí Chicana might say, well, we're not paying for a blue tick and that's fine. Or in places where you've got multiple police forces in a single state, which would be more relevant in this case, someone can just basically say, oh, we're you. And it's very easy to make it look like they are that person. And people get confused. Is this really a, a police yeah. issue? Is it not? Mm-hmm. Like the amount of theories I've had friends discussing with me over the course of the day alone from this, where there's so many ways in which this could turn into a dumpster fire, Claire, is yeah. just ridiculous. Uh, interesting, though, as well, Terry, I do feel that sometimes when we talk about Twitter, it's all in a little bit of a bubble. Like there's a lot of people who are not on Twitter and there's a ton of people who are not hugely interested. And why is all of this so important? I guess from Elon Musk's point of view, he's coming into a company and it's pretty regular maybe as a new CEO of a company to to hire, uh, to fire many people before you hire uh, the people you like to have around you. That may be his... Uh, front-loaded objective. But the fact is that this man is doing exactly the same as Trump and Boris did, which is uh, set fire to this thing, then set fire to another, then create a further distraction. What we should be looking at is the fact that if you look at any of the the great media organisations down through the years, CBS, New York Times, BBC, the heart of what they did was accuracy and Mm -hmm. truth and fact-checking and all of those things. This is a man who, the day after he took over, sent out a tweet that was filthy, that suggested that an Mm -hmm. 83-year-old man was somehow responsible for the attack that damn nearly killed him. This is serious, and we do uh, democracy and journalism a great disfavour if we choose to regard him as amusing and if we accept distraction after distraction rather than focusing in on the the central danger he poses. Um, Heather, I suppose fans of Elon Musk will say that his free speech and his uh, the importance that he rests on maybe not making a profit here but opening up Twitter, getting rid of those blue ticks so everyone's on the same status, people can say whatever they want on this platform, that that's something to be applauded. What do you think? Yeah, well, I think Elon Musk is a phenomenally erratic individual. Um, and I do think, first of all, that these... Well, he's done pretty well out ha- of that, becoming the world's richest man. Well, listen, Tesla was was, was panned at the start. As I said, it was never going to get anywhere. Like, uh, its stocks plummeted, and, and, and now it's worth, I think, $700 billion, etc. SpaceX, the same. Listen, the guy knows how to make money. There's no doubt mm-hmm. about that. Um, but I, I will say that tech companies are too powerful in, in, many, in many ways. So Facebook, Amazon, Google, and Twitter. These are like 
the big uh, monstrosities of the, of the late 19th centuries in America, big monopolies that ha have massive power in terms of all the debates and discussions that happen. They can elevate some voices, they can keep other okay, voices so down. Okay, so what do you think so, of his idea I, that he's saying get rid of sort of algorithms so that you, and give everyone that equal footing to say whatever they want. I, I do think there's there's a bit of a backlash against the control that some social media companies are having in terms of, of amplifying some voices and, and hiding other voices. So, so what are the, you talking there, about there is a view, for example, that you know uh, democracy should be a competition of ideas. That if we, if we allow people to compete, that you know the general public can work out well what's the best solution. And it, it does seem that Elon Musk is looking for a leveler playing field in terms of So you of think it's a healthy move? It, it depends how far he brings it. And he mentioned the word healthscape himself. And, and, and that is a danger in, in terms of already, I would say, Twitter is a hellscape. Already the language and the, the aggro and the, 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 the nonsense on Twitter is already out of... Uh, but Patter, you know, like I was saying that is, I think you're largely right, but also mm. it points to a bigger issue for the commercial viability of Twitter going forward mm. because you could see over the last couple of years Twitter had been working actively because they realised that they were losing money by basically allowing it to be a hellscape mm. and they were improving the profitability as they cleaned mm. it up. Now you've got Musk coming in who's going to... Not, he's saying it's not going to be full hellscape again, but... The real fear is not so much all people announcing, oh, I'm leaving Twitter. That'll have very, very minor impact. What it'll really be is a lot of the heavy users, those that they rely upon for the advertising to make money, will basically get tired of it and stop using it. And there won't be any big announcements. They'll be like, Jay-Z, when they leave here, they'll be gone. To pardon yeah. a terrible reference for my age. And uh, yeah, that'll be the thing. Apathy will cost it money. Yeah, and James, you know, from an Irish perspective, I suppose we have mm. 500 people who are employed by Twitter in this country. Um, they must be worried about their jobs um, with Elon I know some Musk of them, and they are. The yeah. Yeah. Um, and also there's the, the, the whole issue really about what we're doing in terms of big tech accountability sure, in sure, this country sure. when we're housing so many of them and they're enjoying all the tax breaks. Uh, absolutely. So I suppose the multinationals and the foreign direct investment has been a pillar of our economic strategy for decades. Um, yeah. And we're, we've successfully attracted and hosting those tech companies that you mentioned uh, in Dublin. Um, they're doing an awful lot of business out of Dublin. And yeah, actually their European uh, business is being done out of Dublin. So Dublin is now home to 40% of EU data. So what about the responsibility then? Uh, absolutely. So the responsibility legislators is here. here. Yeah, absolutely. That's why in 2017, I introduced uh, the first social media bill of its kind around the world. Uh, the Democrats in the US Senate were introduced around the same time. Uh, that's now law as part of the online, uh, the electoral reform bill, uh, which has come through fruition. That's why we passed Coco's law. is that law. going to do anything about the likes of Elon Musk coming in and just yes, freeing Yes, of course up it is. Yeah. What's it so, going to do? Uh, so the, the Irish Data Protection Commissioner regulates all of European content. So Elon Musk, and he's a, I agree with Papa Patter, he's a total showman. You know, he comes in and he's bought his favourite toy and he's rich enough to he can do it. He's a guy that is a kid who wanted to buy the playground. Yeah. But so, but, I mean, what I'm fine. saying is, but he's still subject to international norms and regulations what, what and are laws. What doing then to so, kind of regulate us yeah. about what he yeah. does? As so CEO so we, we have Twitter. the online safety uh, commissioner bill coming through at the moment. We All already right. have. What's that? The, What's that? So that's creating that? an online. That's I mean, what we keep finished. hearing is that what's required in terms of resourcing big yeah. tech, resourcing so accountability over big tech simply yeah. isn't so, there. So we have three pieces of legislation. We have the electoral reform bill, which builds on the social media oh, bill in 2017. We have Cocos Law, which I passed through the Justice Committee in 2020. Okay. I'm now with the online safety commissioner going through last week. So that's three pieces of legislation that we've done in Ireland alone. All right. Because we're the European think, regulator, we're the base Terry, for the regulatory activities. Terry, do you think Elon's worried about that? I think that be. we all law, should be aware of the one country that was jubilant when he took over, and that was Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia is where journalists get murdered. Mm. There is no respect for the truth or anything else. And when you have Saudi Arabia um, 
nakedly proposing mm. that you are a wonderful addition to free speech, then free speech has a problem. Mm. But Saudi Arabia wouldn't be a proponent of free speech in fairness. Exactly. You know, uh, it would be quite, 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 quite the opposite. And like, listen, there's a difference between free speech and disrespectful and ignorant and aggressive and angry speech. And, and there's no time for, for the latter. But you can have respectful engagement and for people to be able to compete in All their right. ideas as okay, well. Okay, we'll have to leave uh, that conversation there. But lots more coming up after this break, including um, the Bishop of Kerry has apologised over controversial remarks made by a priest at a mass in Listowel. Stay with us. Welcome back. The Catholic Bishop of Kerry has apologised for comments made by a priest concerning same-sex relationships, contraception and transgender rights. Bishop Ray Brown issued the apology following comments made by Father Sean Sheehy at Mass in the Stole over the weekend. Well, for more on this, Finn Falls, James Lawless and Aintu Leader Father uh, Tobin have stayed on with me. And um, we're listening to, to what the congregation at St Mary's Church did when, you know, uh, the, the priest in question spoke and he talked about how sexual sin was rampant, sex between two men and two women was a sin, transgenderism was described as lunatic. I wonder, Padre Jobin, if you were in that congregation, would you have left the church? Well, I didn't hear this, uh, the ceremony um, at all, so uh, I, I, I can't say uh, at all. So, But what I will say is that, first of all, language should be age-specific. You know, if there's children in a particular congregation, it's important that language is, is, is um, orientated towards those children. And secondly, language should be generous as well. So while the church obviously has a right to be able to articulate its policies in terms of what it feels is right and wrong, uh, it, it also has a responsibility to make sure that everybody feels that they are uh, in included within the church too. So are you saying the sentiment is in keeping with the Catholic Church, but the way in which he did it well, was all wrong. You know, in, in, in relation to obviously same-sex marriage, would be, obviously the church would see that uh, as a sin. So in relation to transgenderism, I don't think that the church agrees with that. Uh, I do believe in separation of, of church and state. So I, I believe the church should be allowed to articulate its... Uh, so, it's, so its policies. Father such. Sean Sheehy should have been allowed to say whatever. No, what I, 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 I didn't hear what the homily what, uh, expressed, but from the language that I did hear, it did sound that it wasn't suitable uh, for children uh, to be discussing it in those types of language. And it didn't have the generosity that you would hear in most churches in terms of including people okay. um, yeah. in relation to that. Interesting though, isn't it, um, what Father's talking about there, that it didn't have the generosity and the language wasn't really, you know, maybe appropriate for, for the setting. But is it the sentiment of, of the church essentially? I mean, what we had uh, Bishop Ray Brown coming out saying the views expressed do not represent the Christian position. Yeah. But, I mean, those views expressed are in keeping with the views of the Catholic Church in Ireland, aren't they? Uh, I think they probably are, yeah. I mean, obviously, I didn't hear it either. Um, it caught my eye that this particular priest had spent time in Louisiana uh, in the deep south of America. I don't know if he was watching the Bible-bashing evangelicals over there, if it went to his head, perhaps. Um, but I suppose, like, the church is entitled to have a position, but people are also entitled not to have mm. to follow it. Um, I suppose, speaking from personal experience, a parishioner in my local church suggested to me that I shouldn't attend church anymore after I voted to repeal the Eighth Amendment. Um, I was a bit shocked at the rebuke, but I respected it, actually, because I thought, he has the right to have that view. Now, it wasn't a priest to have to hasten to add, it was a parishioner. 
Um, he has a right to have that view, and, and if that's you know the church's teachings, I have a right to have other views as, as a public representative. Um, so, that, so there's a position, but church and state have to be separate, um, and those of us that are legislators, you know, have to do our business. So um, your point is what with regard to the the the. the the congregation well, leaving, I, I think what we parishioners see, being upset. Yeah, so I think and what we see is... Do you think what goes on in the church stays in the church and if they're upset, I, I well, think that's really, just the way it is? No, not at all. I, I think that uh, the reason that there's a reason why congregations have got smaller and smaller at church gatherings over the last couple of decades. And it's events like this, I think they were far, probably far more common and frequent, uh, say, when I was a child. Um, things have moved on, thankfully. There are some really good people in the church. There's some really good community and pastoral leaders. Mm -hmm. But every time something like this happens, it sets their cause back. And those kind of gatherings, congregations that come in. Um, so I suppose the good work that's been done is being undone uh, by, uh, by the likes of th these incidents. Do you believe it's damaging, Father, very damaging for the church? <laughs> I think if you listen to most priests uh, and most religious around the country, they're very, very clear in what they believe. And, you know, they're obviously entitled to that. But they're obviously very generous in reaching out to people of, of all backgrounds uh, and of all faiths. And, you know, there's, you know, there would be a view that they could disagree with a, an action, but you know, they wouldn't disagree with the person who, who carried... They could show love yeah, to the person who carried out know, that action. We do too. know that Father Sean Sheehy um, said he would stand over his remarks and he actually said about the, the, the bishop apologising on his behalf that he was sacrificing the truth and trying to appease people. Well, l listen, one thing I will say is that most people who probably go to church uh, would agree with most of the issues that the church preaches. But I would doubt that everybody agrees with exactly, in the same way that, that anybody within a political party agrees with exactly what yeah. the political party yeah. agrees with. Everybody's going to have difference of opinions around certain issues. But it's important that when we engage with minorities that we do so in a generous fashion, that why we might disagree with, with, with you know... And, like, All right. Okay, apologies. We are yeah. out of time. We are out of time on this one. There we'll have to leave it. That is it from us, uh, from all the late team here. Good night and do take care. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series.